As we open our Bibles to Matthew 21 this morning, I'm going to read verses 1 to 11, and then we will consider God's Word together. So listen as I read God's Word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, anything to you, you shall say to them, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Lord, once again, as we come together here this morning, we do so in order to hear your word together. We thank you for the privilege that we've had to sing praises to you, just to reflect upon the richness of our Savior, uh, the uniqueness and victory and accomplishment of his sacrifice. Lord, even in this season where men are a little bit more prone to reflect on the death and resurrection of Christ, we just pray that again you would bring these wonderful accounts to us with a clarity and a, and a vividness, that we would get a sense of our Savior and the richness of his being in person. Lord, I pray that this morning as we just consider a few thoughts from a few different passages, that you would bless the word that we consider. Give, O oh God, your people ears to hear. Give us hearts to understand. And grant that I would speak um, simply, clearly, and faithfully. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the scope of the tradition of the world we live in, they call this Palm Sunday, which is a peculiar name, often because of this kind of event where they were laying leaves down as Jesus approached Jerusalem. But we remember this, Jesus is now entering Jerusalem in this passage for the last time in his incarnation. He is going there. Other passages previous to this in the Gospels will say he set his face to go to, to Jerusalem. That was his determined plan that he was going there. There were times that Jesus would go places. For example, when he went to where Lazarus was with Mary and them, the disciples were hesitant to go with him because they, they told him, Jesus, they're looking to lay hold of you. But Jesus said, we are going. And they went because he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And some of the disciples with him said, we will go with him. And if we die, we die. Well, Jesus, as he sets his face to, to Jerusalem, he knows 
that as he enters, in spite of the remarkable momentary response of the people, praise and song, adoration, treating him like a returning victorious king from battle, ascribing to him praise and even phrases uh, that speak of his connection to King David, And phrases that speak of him as the servant of the Lord, which we'll look at. But what I want us to see first is as before this event even comes about, Jesus knows very clearly and very absolutely what he is facing as he goes to Jerusalem. And even knowing it for the love that he has for his people in obedience to his father, to accomplish the salvation for which he was sent, he goes, knowing very well what awaits him. So I'm going to ask you to go with me, and the first thing that we're going to look at this morning, I would say as a first point, are the clearest of declarations. Means there are three times that we're going to look at right now in the book of Mark three times that Jesus tells his disciples well before they go to Jerusalem what is going to happen and I say they're the clearest of declarations because I cannot fathom how to say them more clearly so start with me if you would in Mark chapter 8 we have these in the various gospels it's in Mark it's in Luke it's in John But we're going to focus on Mark this morning. Mark chapter 8, verse 31 to 33 to begin with. It says this, And he, this is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man, which is how Jesus oft referred to himself in his incarnation, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes And be killed. And after three days, rise again. Verse 32 says, and he said this plainly. That's wonderfully clear, isn't it? That's how it initiated. Now go with me to Mark chapter 9, verse 30 and following. In Mark chapter 9, the scripture says it this way. Verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. So he's not spreading this broadly, he's declaring it specifically to his disciples, verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed... After three days, he will rise. Again, I ask you, is that plain? Is that clear? Yet, what does it say in verse 32? But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask. Now, just for just a moment, before I read the third one, they did not understand what he was saying? We have some we little ones in the service today, and I'm quite sure those simple words, he's going to be handed over, killed, and in three days rise again, 
most will understand that, won't they? But what often happens is when what is told to us is different than our desire, our expectations, our conclusions, it doesn't matter how plain it is. It doesn't matter how clear it is. We still tend to say, that doesn't make sense. Because the disciples were confident that Jesus was the Messiah. And of this, they were right. But what they did not understand is their view, as was the common view of their age, so let's not slight them alone in this, was a very earthly, politicized view of the Messiah. He will set us free from the Romans. No longer will Caesar be Lord. The Messiah will be Lord. We will be the head and not the tail. We will not be the oppressed nation anymore. Now is the time for the people of Israel. That's what they thought. And even earlier, as there would be arguments about this, and James and John would request together even with their mother, that when he comes into his kingdom, may they sit at the right and left hand of him. Their thoughts was this would happen pretty soon. They were there with him on occasions where the scripture will even speak of the crowd, was ready to lay hold of him and forcibly make him king, the scriptures say. And Jesus would go out from among them. So it was very clear, but they didn't understand. And this is my hope and prayer for you and me, that God would help us always to just humbly, simply listen to the Word of God. And what it says clearly, we receive fully. And we adjust our expectations. We rethink our conclusions when rightly informed by the word of truth. Yes? Thirdly, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says this in verse 32. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. So this is the third of them in Mark. This is when they're on the final journey, the approach to Jerusalem for his crucifixion. And Jesus walking ahead of them and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Mark 10, verse 33, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. Spit on him. Flog him. And kill him. And after three days. He will rise. Do you hear that brothers and sisters? When I read that. Jesus' understanding of what was coming. Was not just general. It wasn't just. It's going to be hard. It wasn't just, it's going to be bad. He knew in pre precise and painful detail the very things that would be perpetrated against him. And still, he's on his way to Jerusalem. 
He knows they will mock him. He knows they will spit upon him. He knows he will be flogged. He knows every single part of it. And yet he goes. And we would ask ourselves, I guess humanly speaking, we might ask ourselves, why? Why is he doing that? If he knows that some trouble, some problem can be avoided, should he not exercise human prudence and wisdom and avoid such? In some circumstances of life, I urge that upon us in our actions. But here was an occasion where he knew very clearly what God had purposed for him. He knew all along Judas was the one who was to betray him. He knew exactly what he was to face. Even we know that later on, when they're coming from the garden, and the disciples are ready to fight for him in the garden of Gethsemane, even as Peter is severing a servant's ear. In that moment, Jesus says, look, for this I was sent. This is going to happen. I could call down... 12 legion of angels to deliver me from this, but for this purpose I have come into this hour. It is by no mistake, it is by no accident. He knows why the Father has sent him. In a similar way, the disciples themselves are going to go out into this world. Jesus will say to them, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. And he tells them they will be like sheep in the midst of wolves. They will indeed feel like lambs sent to the slaughter. They will be hated by the world because they are not of the world. And it's a difficult thing. And yet when we consider the, the apostles... Going out, what did they do and what did they face? We ourselves have oft considered here even the testimony of Paul as he would speak of his ministry, as even having a, 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 a better ministry than others. And he would talk about with more sufferings. And he would mention his imprisonments. He would mention his shipwrecks. He would mention how he's been beaten with rods, how he's been whipped and flogged. He would mention all of the struggles. He would mention further times that he was hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, sleepless nights. All of those kinds of things that we might look at him and say, Paul, why are you still doing this? They stoned you and left you for dead for preaching the gospel. Why are you going to get up and go do it again? And here's why Paul got up and did it again. Because he knew he was entrusted with the word of God. His responsibility was to make the word of God fully known. And to a degree, the same thing comes in our lives. And, and we are so thankful. And, and I think at this particular moment, uniquely blessed 
There are brothers and sisters all over the world right now who are not able to gather together and sit in a room. They're not able to come together in Jesus' name and sing with one heart and one voice his praises. They're not, they, that, that privilege is not afforded to them because of the prevailing circumstances of virus and pestilence and all these things. But the scripture reminds us, in this world we will have tribulation. Indeed, in Luke 21, Jesus uh, uh, tells us as we move towards the end, there's going to be famines, there's going to be signs in the heaven, there's going to be pestilence. These things are to come. But we know this, many of us in the process of this world will lose our lives. How many days are allotted to us? We don't know. What will be the circumstances of our passing? We don't know. All these things are so uniquely and clearly in the hands of God. And yet what we can do and what we must do is say, but what would he have me to do in the days that he's given to me? In this day that is the day that the Lord has made, what can I do in his name to honor him? In the place where he's put us, with whatever degree of liberty or freedom or circumstances, how can I best honor and serve him? And in the process, honor him by serving him in the lives of his people even, to their praise. I mean, when we look at this, go back with me for a moment, if you would, to the very first one of those in Mark chapter 8. So I do want to draw your attention to this. In their struggle, in these clearest of declarations to understand why, why is uh, Jesus saying this? This is not how it's going to be. This is not what we expect. This is not what we desire, not what we hoped for. Uh, in Mark chapter 8, now going to verse 33, after Jesus has said he would die and in three days rise again, we have those words that I think have oft puzzled many a man. He said this plainly in verse 32, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You know, I, I feel like at times we may live in a world where people try to do the same thing. You read to them the plain and clear teaching of Scripture. Maybe you're reading John chapter 6 or John chapter 10 or Romans chapter 9 or Ephesians chapter 1 that speak of the sovereign grace of God and His perfect purpose of saving all of those that the Father has given Him. And people revile against that and they are, no, that can't be. And it's almost as if some, even under the guise of church, want to take Jesus aside, want to seemingly take the Spirit of God who has superintended the Word aside and rebuke Him. God help us what God says. We don't, whatever it's doing in our hearts, let it do, it, let it do its work. Let us remember that, that, that tension, that wrestling with we, that we may face from time to time may be a necessary pruning. And pruning is not pleasant in the moment that the cutting is taking place. But we are being renewed in our minds that we would have the mind of Christ in us, renewed in the image of God. Listen as he says this, and he says to Peter, 
get behind me, Satan. Or, get behind me, you adversary. Now, would if you had asked Peter, would he have deemed himself an adversary of Jesus? Would he have seen himself an opponent to the cause of the Christ, the Messiah? No. He probably, like many of the other apostles, would have considered him the best among his followers. We, of course, would find out not far from there that he's convinced everyone else will turn away but me. I'm the one who will stay. I'm the one who will die for you this very night if that's what's required, only for Jesus to remind him. Actually, this very night before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And so that, that overconfidence. But see, where, wherein lies the, the problem with Peter? He took him, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I tell you, that is a constant danger. As long as we live in this world, that is a constant danger for every single one of us. Uh, I, I take it with the sense of this is a man who's been traveling with Jesus, who's seen how he lived and how he taught. That sort of perfect example we've yet to see. Many of those that we've set up as examples to ourselves, our hearts have been shattered as we've seen them compromise and fall at times. But here he had seen Jesus, but still the tendency was to set his heart on the, not on the things of God, but on the things of man. Because the things of man are all around us, right? The things that you enjoy, the things that you, you, you involve yourself in, the things that, you engage, that engage your time, your activities, your energy... Just, just this fixation on the temporary. But do, do we look for that which is temporary or that which is eternal? Do we long for those things that are seen or those things that are unseen? I would hope that this could be again a season where though we act with wisdom and we act with care for our, our, our fellow humans and the human suffering that we under, that we, that we are all under, that nonetheless the world can look at the saints and say, why don't you fear? Why don't you flee? Why is it that you have a, a confidence and a hope? Why is it? I can't understand why you're at peace. And it may be that we have a peace that passes understanding. Because we're not looking to this world and, and the things of man, but to the things of God. Indeed, we account that our life here isn't even for us, for ourselves. Uh, uh, it is in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, that Paul says these words, which are very, very strong words. He says, I do not account my life of any value. That's a strong language, isn't it? Nor as precious to myself. 
He followed it up in, in case the first went, well, he's just exaggerating. No, no, not of any value, nor as precious to myself. Then we might ask, then what's the purpose in living if you don't care about it, Paul? And he says, this, still in Acts 20, 24, if only I may finish my course, the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You know what my life is about? It's about continuing to fulfill what Christ has appointed for me. And I know Paul knew no man could take it from him. They tried in Derby. They tried in Ephesus. They tried it, it way back in Damascus. But God would and will fulfill his purposes for him. Even I want us to note this. In Acts 21, uh, Paul himself had, had come to this position, much like, and he began to experience this too. Uh, God had revealed to him, even as we know in the early days of his conversion, how much he would suffer for the name. So to a degree, without as much detail as Jesus did, knowing the suffering that was coming for him, Paul knew suffering was there. And he knew that God had purposed, much like Jesus, that he was to go to Jerusalem. He knew that he would be arrested, and he knew that he would proclaim and defend the gospel in Rome. These things had been revealed to him. But still, all the churches that he was going through, they continued to tell him through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Dangers await you there. Even Agabus comes down and he takes hold of Paul's belt and binds himself up and tells him of the fact that he's going to go there and he's going to end up arrested and imprisoned. And they're all pleading with him not to go, not to go. And Paul says this in Acts 21 verse 13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. Whatever the Lord wills, I am ready. But this I know, as long as I still have breath, it is about doing those things that I know are pleasing in His sight, that I know He would have me do. Even the scriptures remind us of this in Luke 21. As I've shared this, um, as he speaks of the last days, he says, watch yourself lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation, that's debauchery and carousing, and drunkenness, and the cares of this life. Thankful for the addition of that third one, because some of us within Christian circles think, well, I'm not exceedingly inclined to return to the life of debauchery that was mine before Christ. Um, uh, many of us would say, I'm not so inclined to take up drunkenness uh, uh, during the seasons of, of difficulty and strife and fear. But the third one, the cares of this life, the cares of this earthly tent, the cares of this 
temporary body. Can those things consume us? They can. Um, some of us who have been watching the news uh, have been seeing, and then I've heard some people uh, uh, share back after watching, at times they're, they're filming various doctors and nurses across the country with what's going on, and, and so many doctors and nurses themselves are being found to have contracted the virus that a number of them are saying on, on television, um, I'm not going back to work. I've quit. I'm not going into that place because to go there puts my life in danger. Yes, going there might help somebody else to live, but going there puts my life in danger. I'm not going anymore. And one young man I was talking to this week says, that's what they signed up for. When they became doctors and became nurses, that's what they signed up for. They're, they're going in the face of sickness and disease and needy people. And there's going to be diff different circumstances. Well, pretty sad that they're backing out now when they seem to be most needed. Now, I don't say that to judge them, but just to understand it. But then we take that and we say, brothers and sisters, what have we signed up for in a sense? We belong to Christ, which is far more. And we are not to be fools and run into the fire. We're not to, to roam the halls of Walmart giving high fives to everyone we pass by. I mean, uh, uh, that, that's a blatant disregard. But we're not going to sequester ourselves in fear. We don't need to run and hide. As long as there is day, let us work the works of him who has sent us. And what a we have because we get to gather together. We get to praise his name. We get to hear his word. We get to worship together. Oh, what a, what a joy. We get to provoke one another to love and good works. As long as the day is, even as the day is drawing near, we do want to do so all the more when the world would tend to do so less and less. And I pray for the circumstances and legal realities of many of our dear brothers in other states who are unable to do that. We're just praying that God would be merciful to, to move these things past quickly because I know many of them are pining away for the privilege we have this morning. A lot of dear brothers have spoken to me this week and said, oh, if only we were in Texas right now. I said, well, even then, in certain circumstances, in certain churches, it's probably hard to still maintain distance and care. And so we are so thankful for the unique circumstances that God has given us here. Indeed, one of the brothers, um, a fire missionary for many years in uh, Israel, who's recently returned and he's living in Seattle, and his name is Baruch, he, he wrote this to the fire churches as a word of encouragement. And I just want to read part of this to you as a word of encouragement on how to a degree we're called to live in these days. He says this, um, Plagues often raged in the Roman world. When they did, all who were able fled cities, often leaving behind ailing family members. Uh, the Christians, on the whole, rose to the occasion and remained and cared for both their sick 
and others. Their testimony was sealed by many deaths. Julian, the apostate emperor, wrote of, of them, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by even the pagan priests, then I think the impious Galileans, which is what he called Christians, the impious Galileans observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy, devoted themselves to the love of others, devoted themselves to doing good to others. They devoted themselves to doing good for others even at the potential loss of their lives. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't exercise prudence, but, but one thing these individuals indicated is they understood this life is not about this earthly life. This life is all preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond compare. These are the days of service and sacrifice because we have a Savior who so gloriously exemplified service and sacrifice. But I want us to... to um, so, so to, a, to an extent, when we think of this, we remember James chapter 4, verse 14. He says this, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And this is happening in the days of all these viruses. It, it came out this week, some young 16-year-old actor without the coronavirus died of unknown causes and everybody's weighing in on how much they missed him and others succumbing to this sickness and this disease and others dying in, in, in this automobile accident and this circumstance. Virus or no virus, whether tomorrow is allotted to us, we don't even know. It says in James chapter four, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? And I ask you and I ask myself this question. What is your life? He says, you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And sometimes here we are striving to make the mist last and float as long as possible. It's still not going to last all that long. That's why the, I love the way that um, Colossians says this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. Of the coming of Christ. Listen to the phrase in this in, in Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. What is your life? With regard to the earthly aspect of it, a mist or a vapor. With regard to the real significance and priority as to how we live, it is Christ. Christ is our life. We would probably go so far as maybe it says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Oh, that we know that. And so since we know that, we, we fear not what tomorrow brings. Uh, 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 some of us even this morning were discussing the, the, the curious nature 
of this disease where some who have been out and about with some degree of caution but regularity are still safe and secure. And others who have absolutely tried to isolate and sequester have come down with the disease somehow. Because you can get it getting your mail, getting your groceries, getting a box delivered. It's just unknown to us how, when, and where. And so here's the reality. Some of us may get it. Some of us may not. And we don't say this callously. When someone passes, we grieve with those who grieve. You know, we understand sorrow. We understand the pain of that separation. But we also understand hope. And we also understand purpose. And for us to live as Christ, so that Paul could even say, you know what? Christ is going to be glorified whether by my life or by my death. Whether, I, when I, if I live... I'm going to be about the cause of Christ and the pleasure and joy of Christ. And if I die, it's going to be about him too. So powerful and so clear. What clear declarations. And of course, exactly as Jesus declared, those very things happened to him. I want to move on to my second point this morning. Not only the clearest of declarations, I want to look at some lessons that we learn in the passage about the cult of a donkey. I read it at the beginning of this morning from Matthew 1, 21. And I just want us to consider this. That's that passage where, you know, again, there's a few peculiar things that are on there that uh, when, we, when we think of it, he tells his disciples to just go into town and they're going to find a donkey there and take it and its colt and bring them. Now, how does he know there's just going to be a donkey and its colt tied up there? Again, some of you might come to note, he's not just like us. He's the son of God with supreme knowledge. And further than that, he says, if anyone asks you why you are taking him, tell them, the Lord, the master has need of them. And they'll let you. I mean, how often is that someone's uh, taking my donkey and, 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 and my colt now, just to put this in a limited perspective, in the Old Testament, when it came to the redemption of the firstborn, every firstborn belonged to the Lord. Every firstborn son was to be redeemed with a specific sacrifice. There was another redemption that was also allowed. Every firstborn donkey. Because of the usefulness and significance of donkeys in that era and society, every, every firstborn donkey could be redeemed with a particular sacrifice. In, in the introduction to that section on, on the redemption of the firstborn, the only thing we see mentioned for redemption is donkeys and men. Now, they weren't obligated to redeem their donkey. They're, they were obligated to redeem their firstborn that opened the womb. But nonetheless, it shows you the significance of that. Here, someone is taking my donkey and my colt, and they tell me randomly, the master has need of them. W what is our expected response? Uh, who? It, not my master. <laughs> who is this master? But again, how, how God was so worked that that individual with a, individual with a statement so succinct would be absolutely submissive 
helps us to understand what? God constantly, as He pleases, holds sway over the hearts, desires, and decisions of men. And he brings this colt, and sometimes people get caught up in the fact that the colt had never been ridden on, and that itself was a miraculous feat, that it had not been trained and properly broken. There's so many miracles woven into that, but also woven into that is that there, it is the fulfillment of a prophecy. And in fulfillment of that prophecy, I want to read for you Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Listen, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You think, wow. You hear those words, and as he's entering, they're singing these words. Hosanna. This is the song that they're singing to the Lord as he comes. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes. Uh, Hosanna to the son of David. Matthew 21, 9. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And I get it. When I say Hosanna, most of us say, Hosanna. It's like sometimes we say hallelujah, and we respond hallelujah. We know them as biblical words, religious words, but what exactly they mean, we oft don't know. The beauty of this phrase, this is a phrase you find at the beginning of Psalm 118, verse 25, and it is simply this, save us. Save us. And if you keep reading that psalm, it's save us, O God. Here is Jesus, the Messiah, coming, and all these people are gathered together, and they're crying out, save us. Little do they know that he would not save them by coming in and taking the place of Pilate and taking the place of Caesar and sitting upon an earthly throne. Little did they know that he would accomplish salvation by being nailed to a tree, bearing our curse on our behalf, bearing in his own body our sins, so that he being righteous, we would become sin for us, so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Little did they know. Because we also know from this, it seems like many of those who one day are screaming, save us, Hosanna in the highest, another day they're all shouting, crucify him, crucify him, away with him. And, and choosing Barabbas, Bar, uh, Bar, Barsabbas, a known criminal over Jesus. Such is the nature of men. But in that Hosanna, I just want to draw a, a, a few facts out of what we see in that section of Zechariah. As it says, behold your king. I just remind you of a few things. Remember, when Jesus was born, the wise men came from afar, and what did they say to Herod? We have come to see he who is born king of the Jews. And then even as here he's coming in, they say Hosanna, calling him the king. As he stands before Pilate, 
What do they say? He has made himself king. And Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And he, in a sense, says, it is as you say I am. But my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my people would be fighting for me. But my kingdom is not of this world. And you know what? Goes on to tell us. The world will not love us as they love themselves because we are not of this world even as he is not of this world. Love not this world or the things of the world. God help us not to get caught up in all of that. And we see this Jesus, he comes, he is your king. And I love also that when, he, when Jesus is nailed to the cross, what did Pilate write above to the inscription that spoke of his supposed wrongdoing? King of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And he wrote, wrote it in multiple languages. And men complained about that, but he said, What I have written, I have written. Oh, and Jesus proved to be the King, the Son of God in power. But even just uh, uh, quickly moving through the rest of this, in Zechariah chapter 9, it not only says that, um, Behold your King. It, that, it then says this, coming to you, righteous. Some translations there say just. Jesus was the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. It says this in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he bring us to God being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. 1 John 2, 1 says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He alone. We, we again, our minds may oft go to, wait a second. Romans 3, when speaking about mankind, indeed the rest of mankind, all Jews and Gentiles say, none is righteous, no, not one. And that is absolutely true, except for the one who came from above. All else came from below, but he who came from above is above all, and he alone is the righteous one. And our confidence is not in ourselves, but in Him. Not only do we see um, uh, His royal person in His kingship and his, his, his righteous character, that He is righteous, but it says He's having salvation. This speaks of His redeeming work. Remember what was said in Matthew one twenty one. Even in His birth, and we see these things coming full circle. They came to see the King of the Jews. In His birth, you shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. This is what He does. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus saves. And then it says, and then we might even and see his, his remarkable humility. It says humble in, in uh, the ESV. Some translations there say lowly. That idea is, 
it, it carries a couple connotations. When you come to the Greek in the New Testament, it, it carries more of, more of the sense of, of gentle. And we know, silent, he was not defending himself. As they hurled accusations on the cross, he, he bore all of that suffering in silence. But further, the word when you're back in the Hebrew prophecy of it speaks of poor, but more than poor, oppressed and afflicted. Oh, Jesus was oppressed and afflicted on our behalf. And we bear that great privilege. And I close with just a couple more thoughts. Uh, Even as we've looked at the clearest of declarations and then we've looked at the cult of a donkey and some things that come out of that. Lastly, in just some closing sentences, I want to look at the cataclysm in the darkness. Means there's some things that happened in the darkness as Jesus that was nailed to the cross that are just astounding. And I say cataclysm. Cataclysm comes from two Greek words. It's like it's according to the washings. You know, Jesus is, you know, it's sort of a reference to like flood scenarios, significant things. And I think what a great word to kind of speak of what took place on the cross because it is according to an extraordinary washing and the only possible hope for the washing and cleansing from our sin being in Christ. So a true cataclysm of eternal proportions. And it says this um, in Matthew 27. Now there was the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. Okay, so from noon until three, there was darkness. Now listen, scientists and scholars uh, and all kinds of, of men of their ilk have sought to say, it is likely that this accorded with an uh, eclipse, a, a total solar eclipse. Uh, It may or may not have, but why are you somehow trying to remove the miraculous? Although I would still find it pretty miraculous that he through whom all things were were created, that it might be that in the very moment he's nailed to a cross, there would be that unique moment of a solar eclipse. That would be remarkable. But realistically, do solar eclipse last for three hours of darkness? They do not. Why do we not understand that this is a miraculous work of God? Jesus himself was the light of the world. While you have me, walk in my light. He who was the light of the world, he through whom all the world came to have life and being and existence, as he was being put to death. Darkness spoke of the source of life being put to death in just this remarkable symbolism. And indeed, I guess there's a second sense. He himself was light and in whom there's no darkness at all. We know he would bear in his body on the tree our sin. He would be made sin for us. He would bear our curse. It's in a, in a sense as if he who is perfectly light is now shrouded in darkness. Who he is in, is in perfect unity and bliss with the Father is now bearing the wrath of the Father and crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in that time, as darkness prevailed for three hours, the scripture says, and the earth shook Rocks were split in two, 
as the one who brought creation into existence and who upholds it by the words of his power, as he who is the source, substance, and sustainer of all that we know is being put to death. Creation itself lets out this loud groan and shakes and breaks and splits. And remarkably, in that same moment, the scriptures tell us there, the curtain in the temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Our best research with regard to how the Holy of Holy was veiled in, in Solomon's and the second temple is that it was veiled in a curtain that was 20 feet high. Not many people can reach the top of that. And e e even with that, the thickness of it was the thickness of a hand breadth. This was something that was not going to tear. It, it was not, it, this isn't an inadvertent, inadvertent secondary effect of the earthquake. This is a divine ending of the old covenant, an opening of a new and living way in Christ Jesus. That holy of holies that represented where the mercy seat was, that represented where the presence of God was. Now with Christ, we are able to draw near with boldness through the veil that is His flesh, it tells us in the book of Hebrews. So much is there. So let me simply conclude this morning by reminding us a few of the things that we've heard today. The clearest of clear declarations. Jesus knew he was going to suffer, but he was committed in all things and in all moments to live for his Father. The disciples knew that they were going to suffer, yet they were committed in all things to live for Jesus. We know that we will be persecuted. We know that there will be sword, famine, peril, pestilence, danger, you name it. But nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And nothing can stop us from striving to do those things that we know are pleasing in His sight. Secondly, we saw not only the clearest of declarations, the cult of a donkey. Hosanna, save us. And indeed, Jesus did come bringing salvation. He is the promised royal king. He is righteous alone in his character. He is redeeming in his work. He is remarkable in his humility and obedience. Obedient even unto suffering, even the death on the cross. And thirdly, the cataclysms of darkness. We see the darkness where the light itself the light of the world would allow himself to be extinguished that he might give eternal life to all who believe. The earth shaken, the veil turn, a new and living way. What a salvation. What a savior. What a privilege to be his people and say, this is the day the Lord has made. However many days he allots to me for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. We will not think according to the 
cares of this world. They will not sweep us away and distract us. We will not be caught up in thinking after the manner of men that Peter was. But we want to think after that highest privilege, our God, who has set the Savior before us as that supreme example and who has set his Savior, the hope of glory, within us that we might live with boldness and unshakable faith as we love one another, as we share his love to the world around us. Let's pray. God, we are so, so thankful that we can come, that we can worship you, that we can sing your praises. There is no God like you. The remarkableness of these prophecies, the powerful way that you display your purposes in even the, the darkness and the light and the earthquakes, the, the providence and power of God displayed in storms and, and pestilence and thunder and peril and all the plagues and all of the pains of humanity. God, we thank you of the surety that you remain sovereign and our times are in your hands. God, we pray that knowing that they're in your hands, that we would make the most of the time, that we would redeem the time because the days are evil. Let us work the works of light while we have day, for the night is coming when no man can work. Lord, give us boldness even in these days where the world is at fear around us. Grant us to live with faith, a faith that looks beyond what is seen and what is transitory to that which is abiding and that which is eternal, sure and secure in Jesus who has saved us from our sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.